Portage Health Foundation is proud to introduce you to Superior Educator Jessica Hendrickson of Stanton Township Public Schools. Jessica is the glue that keeps their school together. Her cheerful energy can be felt through emails and heard over phone and in person. She is quick to respond to questions or concerns from all parents. She is very welcoming and especially to new students who benefit from seeing her friendly face. If you know an amazing educator like Jessica, go to superioreducators.org and nominate them to be recognized as the next Superior Educator. Back to segment two of Copper Country Today on this Sunday morning. I'm Todd Van Dyke. We're brought to you, of course, by the Portage Health Foundation. And you can find out more about them and their mission at phfgive.org. Of course, there was some pretty big news that came out of Lansing. Now it's a little over a week ago. A $4.7 billion infrastructure bill made up mostly of federal money and some state money thrown in as well. That is going to make a whole lot of changes across the state of Michigan. It's a huge bill, and I thought it would be a good idea to bring in State Senator Ed McBroom to talk about what exactly is in this bill and what it means for us. Ed, welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks, Todd. I'm glad to be here. This bill came together. Uh, I got to say, I was a little bit surprised uh, with all of the partisan rancor I've heard on many of these issues that it addresses. This came together pretty cleanly, it looked like. Yeah, I think that the fundamental push that we had, people like myself and others, that, okay, if we've got all this federal money, that and regardless of how we feel about whether that's wise that the federal government's fiscal policy makes any sense or not, we have this money. How do we utilize it in a way that has a lasting impact and still has value to us, regardless of what happens to the value of the dollar? And that was to put it into infrastructure and um, invest in building things. And so this bill really focuses on that, especially on water, roads, and bridges along with some other smaller pieces. And I think that there's just widespread agreement that that was the right thing to do. Now, I've seen a, a bit about what's in it, and I'm sure there's a lot more than uh, to it than what I've been able to take a look at. It certainly does make a huge investment in clean drinking water. This, of course, will involve a lot of lead pipe, uh, lead water main pipe replacements, uh, and particularly in some of the older downstate communities. How much, if any, of that clean water money is coming up our direction? Yeah, so there's a tremendous amount of water infrastructure pieces that are here. We've got investment in replacing septic uh, systems, investing in stormwater, investing in clean drinking water, not just for lead, but PFAS issues as well. Uh, so there's a lot of pieces here to the water infrastructure puzzle. And one of the things that I'm really proud of is that we were able to get a number of engineers from the Upper Peninsula on the phone with uh, some of our colleagues downstate who were writing this bill to say, how do we make it so that small communities around Michigan, including the Upper Peninsula, have a fair shake at the table when they go to apply for these grants? And we were able to make some very strategic decisions so that pots of this money are pretty much walled off for communities over 10,000 people and reducing some of the grant writing application requirements. So we've, we've done a number of things that are going to make it easier for our small towns all over Michigan, but including the Upper Peninsula, be better able to compete for these funds. That had been a question that I had been uh, meaning to ask you as this went on, because it's such a huge amount of money. I can't 
wrap my arms around $4.7 billion. And somebody's going to have to do the bookkeeping. Somebody's going to have to do the, uh, the accounting. Somebody's going to have to set up this process by which communities are going to have to apply for all of this. I suppose there would be a temptation to say, well, we'll just dole it out to uh, DEQ, we'll dole it out to MDOT, we'll dole it out to some of the bigger state agencies, and leave it at that. But some of our little communities up here, we've got things that we need. Are we really going to have an opportunity to cut through all of this and maybe get some road money for our residential neighborhoods, things of that nature? So I think when it comes to the water side, we did some really excellent work on making sure that our local communities across the UP are going to have more access than ever before to some of these funds. We've There's several different grant programs that have been created. We're basically utilizing what's already there, but we've embargoed some of that money to smaller communities. We've changed some of the grant writing process. Uh, so I think we're going to do well there. When it comes to roads and bridges, um, the UP does compete probably better than a lot of people might anticipate when it comes to the state highway uh, side of things and state bridges. Uh, the local dollars is more challenging, and I'm not entirely satisfied with, with where that's at. That's something we still have to work on. But we are always in a bit of a tug of war. And honestly, when we were passing a different bill a couple of weeks ago, I had a colleague from the Ingham County area try to put on an amendment and he tried to get Democrats and Republicans from Southeast Michigan to support it that would have really taken away a huge amount of funding from the Upper Peninsula. I thought about getting up and making an amendment to his amendment, calling it the anti-UP road bill because of what he was trying to do and trying to get support for. So it's, uh, it is a constant battle. In some ways, we need to do a lot better. On the other hand, we could be a lot worse. I do think we are going to see more investment in roads and bridges, but I will say, too, that I think overall, statewide, we need to restructure the formula to provide more of that to local communities, because you drive around the UP and you see a lot of our state roads, state highways, they're not the ones that really need this super attention right now. It's the crumbling city streets that you can barely drive down that really need more attention. Yeah, I was going to use my, my home village of Lantz as an example, not because we're different or uh, out of the ordinary, but because we are pretty ordinary. We've got some residential streets that are just basically patches on patches on patches. And the money, I know how much it costs to pave a road. We don't have that kind of money here in our town. Yeah, it's, it's awful. I, it, and sometimes you're lucky if you've got patches on the patches because I just drove on a street in one of uh, Dickinson County's towns that I was in today, and then one up in Iron County where, I mean, we're right down on the gravel in the middle of a paved road. All of a sudden, we're driving on dirt and mud. So it, there's some really awful local streets, city streets, village streets that desperately need more attention, and we really do need to do more for that. And uh, this bill doesn't accomplish that, but it does provide more money to the formula as a whole. So there will be more funds available for roads. One of the other obstacles we're facing, quite honestly, right now is how do we get more workers to get involved with this infrastructure repair? Because you talk to the road builders, and I mean, their equipment, they're waiting for the paver to get there because there's only so many of them around. So it's, it's challenging right now when you have this much money at hand to uh, actually find enough workers and equipment to do the jobs that we want to pay for. 
Talking with State Senator Ed McBroom, and we're discussing the infrastructure bill, the Michigan infrastructure bill, $4.7 billion. That'll be coming out. What's the timetable as to when this money's going to be uh, start to be doled out here, Ed? Well, so a lot of it's going to be available, uh, especially for roads and bridges, could be available sooner rather than later. I mean, it's there, but you still have to do the application processes. You still have to get approved. I, I suspect to a large extent a lot of these programs are going to start awarding things late summer into fall for projects that will be done next year. That's my expectation. There may be some that get out a little bit earlier, but I would say the bulk of these are not actually going to see the, the money hit the shovels until next spring. How much of the infrastructure problem does this I almost hate to use the word solve because the infrastructure problem has been described to me as being so huge in the state of Michigan that this will certainly be helpful. But is there a risk at looking at this as a cure and ignoring the fact, as you mentioned earlier, that we really do need to address the formula and see what's going to happen after this? So when it comes to the investment in roads and bridges, this is clearly just a extra boost to what's already been put in motion both by a uh, substantial overhaul in 2015 and by the governor taking out an enormous loan on her own here a couple of years ago. And so that's why you've been seeing a dramatic increase in orange barrels and, and cones over the last couple of summers. And so this adds to that. We're on a course right now, on a good trajectory on getting after road and bridge infrastructure repairs. Once again, I. I would still continue to say without enough emphasis and focus on local roads, but across the board on state roads and county roads, it is improving. But this bill is still primarily, when it comes to infrastructure, focused on water and on water needs. And it really does approach what we've been told is a lot of that necessary dollar threshold that we need to get to. It doesn't cover all of it, obviously, but... You know, talking to the various communities around the state and the reports back about what we need, this makes a significant approach to that overall figure. And a lot of that is one time, because if you replace somebody's lead uh, water lead, you don't have to do that, hopefully, again for another century. Right, Uh, and hopefully even longer. Um, So, uh, (laughs) yes, exactly. I mean, we've still got towns that are using some wood pipes in places, and those lasted for a century. So we really hope that you know, upgrading and and doing this work is going to put them on a very good trajectory long term. This bill also has some uh, infrastructure investments for broadband in it. Um, I think that's, you know, significant. A lot of people understand uh, how important that's become, especially with the shutdowns that we had. So that's another significant portion of this. I think the other thing that impressed me about this was the fact that it it, it did include so much for water and and sewer and septic and things of that nature. Those are not sexy issues. Those are not the issues that you go out necessarily and stand in front of your electorate and raise your hand and say, yeah, we got more sewer money. (laughs) (laughs) Right, but towns all over the UP that are struggling with leaks and just how much extra water they have to pump because it's leaking. You know, and then communities that are, have to do a road project and they've got the money for the road project and they realize, well, we need to do the water at the same time. Otherwise, we're just going to tear up our brand new road. So trying to bring these things together and make sure that they can happen together saves everybody money long term.
And the broadband thing, I know that's something Greg Markinen has been working on and has been kind of a, a focus of his in the state house. Um, that's really, I think, going to bring a lot of our areas up into the 21st century. There's great opportunities there, whether you want to be able to start a business at home, um, whether your kids want to take some online classes, even for me, milking cows. I mean, I have to have broadband uh, to connect my milking equipment uh, to, the, to the World Wide Web. So, I mean, it's, it is part of our significant future right now. And that's why you see Northern investing so much in teaching kids about cybersecurity because there's a lot of career opportunities uh, coming to us in that area as well. These are all really big and important things that are going on. One of the more kind of nestled in there unusual projects that you know I'd love you know people to know about is the uh, is investment downstate near a huge potash find. And so people might be hearing about potash in the news so much lately because Osceola County. Uh, yes. Yeah. And so you've yeah. got huge fertilizer shortage, which is going to really increase food costs for everyone. And now we found this huge potash deposit in Michigan. And so one of the investments in there is on infrastructure around this potash find to help get that out into the marketplace. And Michigan's going to become a huge uh, contributor to the potash uh, sh uh, shortage and help bolster the supply of that worldwide. Because potash is something that we've been importing a ton of. Absolutely. So this is so it's just another interesting little tidbit that's in there that might get passed over. Of course, the, the support for Copper Peak, uh, bringing that piece of infrastructure back up into utilization and availability is a huge opportunity for all the Upper Peninsula, but particularly the West End, um, who's really been kind of left out in the cold on economic development for a long time. Yeah, I heard some downstate reporters talking about potash, and they didn't know what it was. They're going, well, we don't know what this is, but they're <laughs> thinking, thinking, no, no, no. If you know anything about farms, you know potash. Potash is an essential ingredient in fertilizers, and uh, and that's uh, that, that could be a game changer, that thing in Osceola County. That's uh, going to be interesting to see how that plays out. It's been a really interesting project working on this infrastructure bill with, with my colleagues, and there's a few other small things in there that weren't infrastructure there was some money in there from the Fed specifically for housing and helping with housing needs. Um, that we could that was what it was sent to us for. That's the only thing it could be used for. And then there's also some money in there to help our communities that lost population due to the census. Uh, and what happens then is, well, now that you have fewer people, the constitutional revenue sharing, the statutory revenue sharing from the state drops, but it technically drops based on 2020. Well, now we're in 2022, so communities would have to literally pay money back to the state. And they do, we do this every 10 years, apparently. I mean, it's my first time serving in this way, but um, there's money in there to smooth over that transition from what they had before so they don't have to pay money back if they lost population. Talking with State Senator Ed McBroom, you talked about uh, the formula for roads and, and road funding uh, a while back in the discussion here, I'm remembering back to the Snyder administration, and they did a study at that point, this must have been six, seven, eight years ago, saying that Michigan basically needed to invest $3 billion a year over the long term in roads or increase the investment by $3 billion a year long term. And I saw recently a report that came from one of the road building organizations 
that speculated what was going to happen to our road quality with this new investment that was coming in. And it did show an upswing over the next three or four years as we repair the worst of our roads. But then it slowed, uh, showed a downswing. Once again, as the roads that are not in terrible shape now deteriorate and this funding kind of cuts back and goes away again. How do we restructure things so that if we get on that upswing and we get some of our roads in better shape, we don't wind up 10 or 15 years from now where we were over the last few years? Well, there's some key elements to to think about. One, and this will sound maybe a little cynical or, or jaded, but... These these folks who put out these studies, the uh, the associations and all, of course, they're always going to continue to paint a bit of a picture that set, that wants us to send them more money. So really, I'm I'm uh, stunned by this. I'm absolutely <laughs> stunned. <laughs> so so it's always important to take it with a little grain of salt. I remember as we worked on some of these things a few years ago on road funding that they they come out with this study that says here's, you know, Michigan's grade for roads was a D or something like that. Well, you look around the entire country and even states that had invested a huge increase in their fuel taxes within the last five or six years, the best grade I saw was a C plus. I mean, almost everybody in the country was a D and yet, you know, and, and you went around the country and politicians in every state were saying, we got the worst roads in the nation. Every, I mean, it's like everybody's saying that same thing. So, um, they try to take it and, and do a, you know, not just take somebody who says, give us the money, we're going to do a great job and fix everything and, and just run with that. It takes some serious look back. So there's that first side of me that's a little bit jaded. On the other side, the reality, too, that we have to consider is a lot of the fixes that we did prior to really starting to actually invest in our deficit of road care in 2015 was you know, because Angler and Granholm took out huge loans in the early 2000s that paid for roads um, then, and then nothing really happened from the mid-90s as far as funding went except for those loans until 2015-16. And so what did we do with roads in those shorthanded years where Michigan's economy was bad? We had lost a billion jo- uh, people, not a billion people, I'm sorry, a, a, <laughs> a million people. And so what did we do? Well, we did really, really cheap work on our roads. And you might have seen a paving project near you and driven on it and thought, wow, this is beautiful. But the quality of work and materials that went into that is why the road was within five years just as bad as it was when they started. And so we're now trying to do, you know, with the investment we're making, make the roads that will last longer. But we have this backlog of roads we're driving on right now that seem nice, but were made and fixed with cheaper materials and cheaper engineering. And so we're still going to have that reality to deal with here in the coming, in the short term. Got about five minutes left, Senator. I want to touch on something else that uh, is coming to the surface that you've been involved with, and that is oversight. You have proposed, and others, I believe, are in this with you, but you are one of those who are proposing that a nonpartisan oversight panel be set up to look at state departments and try to take some of the partisanship out of the oversight of those departments. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, thank you. I guess I wouldn't call it a nonpartisan panel. It's a bipartisan panel, so it's got equal, equal party participation what what I've observed, you know, especially in this era of very short-term limits that we have in Michigan, and because Michigan uh, 
swings back and forth between party control of both the governor's office and the legislature is that you have these windows that sometimes can be quite extensive where the party that's in power is also in power in the legislature and they're not exactly looking to ruffle the feathers of their guy in the executive office and so oversight slows down and it becomes less aggressive and then when there's two opposite parties then oversight might happen but it could be really driven by partisanship and only be looking at things in such a way as to bring down the other side instead of actually looking at serious stuff and trying to make government work better for the people and so as i've taken the reins on the oversight committee first in my time in the house and now in the senate i spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do we build this up so when i'm gone those who follow me of either party maintain a focus on oversight and don't let it lapse because there's been times where they didn't even have an oversight committee how do we make sure we have it how do we make sure they're taking the auditor general reports very seriously this is a nonpartisan auditor that works for us that brings us these reports and then how do we try to remove some of the political grandstanding that happens surrounding all of this so i've explored other states. I've done a lot of research about what other states do, who, who do it better than us, who do it worse than us. And this is one of the ideas that we've come forward with is if you have a constitutionally created and mandated committee, so it can't be done away with, it's got people serving from both chambers, so you have some stability and longevity, and it's bipartisan all the time, equal party membership, then it has a mission that's not really dissuaded then by who's in control, who's in power, um, who you're trying to protect or not to protect. So I'm hopeful that this is a, a, an, a functional idea. It seems to be working well in other states, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing us roll it out here in Michigan. Would, could this have helped prevent things like what happened in Flint? I think it absolutely could have. I mean, it still takes the gumption of those who are serving, but... I served on the investigating committee that was created um, for Flint after the fact and said to a lot of folks, it's like if there had been a body for the citizens of Flint to come to to say, this is the water I'm drinking. And, and, and they, they were going to their local, they were showing up to DEQ meetings and, and complaining, but they were just being written off because there was no elected official at those meetings. There was no with some skin in the game, you know, who needed to pay attention. And they just got written off by bureaucrats. And I'd like to believe that, you know, if they had shown up in my office or something, I'd been like, really, this is the water you're drinking? And, you know, month after month for over a year and a half, they did that. And nobody took them seriously until, you know, finally that doctor discovered how children's lead levels were going up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this would be a constitutional change, so we'd all have to vote on it, I assume. That's correct. Yes. So it's, yeah, it's, it's something that uh, I'm sure isn't going to come up tomorrow, but it's something worth watching. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that we can, uh, I'm hoping to get that, uh, some open records issues, the ma mandate open records for the legislature, the governor's office, a permanent ethics committee is another reform I've been working hard on. So there might be a couple of things on our constitution uh, um, uh, amendment voting this fall. And uh, certainly look forward to talking to them if I can get the support to get them on the ballot. Well, Michigan does not fare well when people talk about uh, ethics in government. And those are some no. of the reasons why. It's not necessarily that everybody in Lansing is crooked. 
There are a few, but most people I know in Lansing are pretty well-meaning. But this lack of transparency, this lack of accountability, uh, this hurts in the view of many people across the nation. Right, and that's why we need to have these kind of permanently established oversight and ethics committees so that it becomes the way of doing business and so that when there's temptation on members, they recognize, oh, it's, I'm not going to be able to get away with this, so it's not worth even trying to skate on the edges. Because the members who do become corrupted, uh, you know, it doesn't start all, almost none of the people I, I serve with got elected to do bad things. They are almost all there for the right reasons. Even if I disagree with them fundamentally, they are there for the right reasons. But they start off cutting a little corner here, a little corner there, and it snowballs in. And, you know, it's not good for the citizens. It's not good for those members. And it certainly doesn't make our government uh, reputable around the country. We need to have some of these safeguards put in there to keep that power from so readily corrupting. And, and the money, too. Just, we, we have to have better systems on the money and on reporting because it's just ugly what people can get away with. State Senator Ed McBroom, thank you for your time on Copper Country Today. Yeah, thank you, Todd.